Good evening, church. <clears throat> this is not a cuddly book, is it? I do have the doubtful pleasure of speaking to you about 38 and 39 tonight. <clears throat> um, for many of you, this will not be your, this will be your first encounter with these chapters. For others, it won't, um, mostly because it's a bit too familiar to those who spin speculative theories about the end of the world. Why do they do so? Well, these chapters are going to describe for us a war at the end of days, a war between a coalition of nations and, and Israel, a war that in the book of Revelation occurs at Har Magidon, the mountain of Megiddo, or as it's called in English, Armageddon. In Ezekiel's oracle, the bad guys are led by a mysterious figure named Gog of the land of Magog. Through history, Jews, Christians, and Muslims have tried again and again to identify who this character might be. The impulse to do so is quite understandable. If, after all, we can recognize this person, presuming it's a person, whenever he appears on the world stage, we will know that the end is nigh. In Jewish tradition, Gog has been identified with many persons or groups, including General Titus of Rome, the Huns, and rather strangely, the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel. Christian tradition has associated it with dozens of characters, including Emperor Nero, Napoleon, and for at least one medieval bishop, the Irish. Rather famously, two American presidents claimed to know the identity of Gog. Toward the end of the Cold War, as part of his argument for a massive new military buildup, President Ronald Reagan publicly identified the villain in this passage as Russia. Likewise, in 2003, President George W. Bush called then French Prime Minister Jacques Chirac to persuade him to participate in the invasion of Iraq. The invasion as it happens, the invasion had to happen, Bush claimed, because, quote, Ezekiel's prophecy is being fulfilled, unquote. As it so happens, um, Jacques, Jacques Chirac's staff called a friend of mine to explain to them what on earth George Bush was on about. <clears throat> Now, I have no intention tonight of trying to identify this character to you. In point of fact, he is, I believe, deliberately obscure. We're not meant to be able to identify him. This oracle has an entirely different purpose. To understand the oracle, we have to go back, back to where I left off three weeks ago, and my apologies to those of you who weren't here three weeks ago, when I preached on Ezekiel 1 and 2. At that time, I described the crisis of faith that confronted Judah when she lost her war with Babylon. The temple was plundered, and many of the people were taken away to live in Babylon. That disaster raised endless questions, questions about God's ability to protect his people and his ongoing relationship with them. 
Perhaps he had been unable to protect them, or perhaps he had divorced them, abandoning them in a violent and unpredictable world. Five years after the disaster, while living among the community of exiles in Babylon, Ezekiel was forced to become a prophet. God appeared to him in Babylon, fed him a scroll, as we saw, filled with lamentation, moaning, and woe, and then ordered him to speak its words to the people, explaining all the terrible, that all the terrible things which had happened to them were well-deserved, that God was within his rights to punish them for their many rebellions. Chapter after chapter of this book described the people's shortcomings and their flagrant disobediences. One of the most evocative chapters, the one we just read in chapter 6, focuses on the most serious of Israel's sins. Chapter 6 describes pagan worship sites on hilltops and mountaintops, pagan worship sites in Judah. Altars and incense stands have been set up under hilltop trees, and the people have been going out to them to make their sacrifices to unidentified pagan deities. Over time, the hills have absorbed the bones and other residue of the sacrifices, becoming ever more verdant and lovely. The oracle describes this, but it does so in reverse, because the whole chapter is a parody and a judgment. I'm just going to repeat the first verses of the chapter again. O mortal, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them. Say, you mountains of Israel, hear the words of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains and to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. I, I myself will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be desolate. Your incense stands broken. I will throw down your slain in front of your idols. I will lay the corpses of the people of Israel in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, your towns will be waste, your high places ruined, so that your altars are waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense stands cut down, and your works wiped out. The slain will fall in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. God doesn't speak to Judah, but to the mountains, as if they were to blame for the sins that were committed on them. Judah is supposed to worship God alone in Jerusalem alone. Since she will not, God will use the pagan Babylonians to destroy Judah's pagan worship sites. The altars and the incense stands will be pulled down and broken. The bones on the hilltops will be the bones of the worshipers now, slain by the enemy. Even the green tree-topped hills will be made into a wasteland. And why? Why did God crush the land? As he says, because I was crushed by their wanton heart that turned from me. Ezekiel's rhetoric, as always, is clever and effective. Now, there's seven elements to this elegant but terrible little oracle that we need to keep in mind before we turn to Ezekiel 38 and 39. If you'll pardon my speaking artlessly for a moment, I just want to list them. The first, 
the people sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. So God brings his sword upon the mountains. The mountains and the land are ruined. The slain of Judah are scattered on their own hills and mountains. The bones of the slain are exposed on the surface of the land. The survivors described, are described as fugitives of the sword and scattered among the nations. And the annihilation of Israel teaches the survivors to know that I am the Lord. If you can't remember those, don't worry. We're going to return to them in just a little bit. Since Ezekiel first saw God and became a prophet and uttered this oracle in chapter 6, things have gotten much worse for the people. There's been a second war between Judah and Babylon. This time, the Babylonians have had no mercy. Jerusalem and the temple were razed to the ground. The remaining population of the city was taken away to join the people already in exile in Babylon. To the ordinary observer, one who is not a prophet, it would appear as if the Israelite experiment has failed. God's goal that he first revealed to Abraham was to bring blessing to the nations through the family of Abraham. That goal seems to have been derailed. But just at this moment, when the future of the survivors seems most bleak, Ezekiel begins to speak in a more positive vein. Beginning in chapter 33 and running through to the end of 39, Ezekiel starts to reveal things that will happen in the people's future. Good things that will happen in their future. He directly addresses a number of the people's most pressing questions about their survival, about the restoration of the monarchy, about the reconstruction of the land, including Jerusalem and the temple. And throughout those chapters, he carefully avoids one question. When? God has punished his people, but when will he punish the other wicked nations? When will his people be allowed to go home? When will he pour out his spirit on the people so they can obey him faithfully? When will he live in their midst again and bless them with his protective presence? He avoids answering those questions until chapter 38 of the book. For those who are following along, we're on page 869 in your pew Bibles. I'm going to read this whole oracle. It extends several pages, chapters 38 and 39, and I'm going to interrupt myself every once in a while to note some details along the way, if that's all right. Just think of them as verbal footnotes. The word of the Lord came to me. Mortal, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tuval. Prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval. I will turn you round. I will put hooks in your jaws and bring you out with your whole army your horses, your horsemen fully armed, a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing swords. Persia, Cush, Put will be with them, all with shields and helmets, also Gomer and all its troops, and Beth Togarmah from the far north with all its troops, and many nations with you. Get ready. Be prepared. You and all the hordes gathered round you. 
and take command of them. After many days, you will be called to arms. At the end of years, you will invade a land that has recovered from war, whose people were gathered from many nations unto the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They had been brought out from the nations, and now all of them live in safety. You and your troops and the many nations with you will go up, advancing like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On that day, thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil scheme. You will say, I will invade a land of unwalled villages. I will attack a peaceful, unsuspecting people, all of them living without walls and without gates and bars, and I will plunder and loot and turn my hand against the resettled ruins and the people gathered from the nations, rich in livestock and goods, living at the center of the land. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all her villages will say, have you come here to plunder? Have you gathered your hordes to loot, to carry off silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods and seize much plunder? Therefore, mortal, prophesy. Say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. In days to come, Gog... I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. Without any explanation here of how it came about, Israel is suddenly described as having begun to resettle and rebuild the land. The fledgling nation is wealthy, but it's small and it's unprotected. We should note that nothing is said about Jerusalem or the temple or God's presence in all of this. The many nations listed here come from all around Israel, some to the north, some to the east, some to the south. Still others are located northeast, northwest, southeast, southwest. This is Ezekiel's way of expressing the idea that it's the whole world that has come against Israel. Most importantly... Gog and his horde are twice described as a storm cloud. In chapter 1, the storm cloud that covers God's presence, his kavod, left Israel and came to Babylon. Here in 38, the image is reversed. Gog and his army are a storm cloud covering the land. They have come to Israel not to protect it, but to destroy it. Gog's host is, in effect, an anti-god. The oracle continues in verse 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You are the one I spoke of in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel. At that time, they prophesied that I would bring you against them. This is what will happen on that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time, there'll be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the beasts of the field, every creature that moves along the ground, and all the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble. 
Every wall will fall. I will summon a sword against Gog on my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment on him with plague and with bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain and hailstone and burning sulfur on him and his troops and the many nations with him. So I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. Though Israel appears to be weak and vulnerable, she is once again mysteriously under God's protection. He now stands between Gog's army and the defenseless people. He destroys the invaders with supernatural actions, earthquakes, giant hailstones, brimstone. He turns the enemies against one another so that they kill one another. The result, then they know that I am the Lord. This is one of Ezekiel's favorite expressions, which he used in chapter 6, as we saw. He adopted it from the Exodus story. To know that I am the Lord is to acknowledge God's sovereignty and supremacy. It is to submit to the God of Israel. Pharaoh was forced to do this at the beginning of Israel's story. Israel was forced to do it in chapter 6. Gog will be forced to do it at the end of years. Then suddenly, at the beginning of chapter 39, it's as if the prophet starts over again. He seems to be saying the same thing, though using different words. Mortal. Prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tuval. I will turn you round and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand and make your arrows drop from your right hand. On the mountains of Israel you will fall, you and all your troops and the nations with you. I will give as food to all kinds of carrion birds and to the wild animals. You will fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says the sovereign Lord. I will send fire on Magog and on all those who live in safety in the coastlands. They will know that I am the Lord. I will make known my holy name among my people Israel. I will no longer let my holy name be profaned, and the nations will know that I, the Lord, am the Holy One in Israel. It is coming. It will surely take place, declares the Sovereign Lord. It is the day that I've spoken of. But beginning in verse 9 now, he's going to give us some new information. Then those who live in the towns of Israel will go out and use the weapons for fuel and burn them up, the small and large shields, the bows, the arrows, the war clubs, the spears. For seven years, they will use them as fuel. They won't need to gather wood from the fields or cut it from the forests because they will use the weapons for fuel. And they will plunder those who plunder them and loot those who looted them, declares the sovereign Lord. On that day, I will give Gog a burial place in Israel. In the valley of those who travel east of the sea, I will block the road for travelers because Gog and all his hordes will be buried there. So it will be called the valley of Hamon Gog. For seven months, the Israels will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I display my glory will be a memorable day for them. 
declares the sovereign Lord. People will be continually employed cleansing the land. They will spread out across the land and along with others bury any bodies that are lying on the ground. After seven months, they will carry out a detailed search. As they go through the land, anyone who sees a human bone will leave a marker beside it until the gravediggers bury it in the valley of Hamon Gog, near the town called Hamonah, and so they will cleanse the land. So many weapons are left behind that, of course, they serve the nation as firewood for seven years. So many corpses left on the ground that it takes seven months to bury them. This is simply expressing the size of this invasion. In the next verses, though, the prophet describes what happened to the corpses before they could be buried. Mortal, this is what the sovereign Lord says, call out to every kind of bird and all the wild animals, assemble, come together from all around for the sacrifice that I am preparing for you. The great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. There you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as if they were rams and lambs and goats and bulls, all of them fattened animals from Bashan. At the sacrifice I'm preparing for you, you will eat fat until you're glutted and drink blood till you are drunk. At my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders and mighty men and soldiers of every kind, declares the Sovereign Lord. Very curious. God describes the annihilation of Gog's army as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, and he invites the wild animals to join him in a sacral feast following the sacrifice. It's certainly a rather poetic way to describe carrion animals eating corpses lying on the ground after a battle. But it's more than clever imagery, as I'll explain in a few moments. It's the next verses, though, that tell us what all this bloodshed means. That is, what Israel and the nations are supposed to deduce from all of this. I will display my glory among the nations. All the nations will see the punishment I inflict and the hand I lay upon them. From that day forward, the people of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. And the nations will know that the people of Israel went into exile for their sin because they were unfaithful to me. So I hid my face from them and I handed them over to their enemies and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their offenses, and I hid my face from them. The destruction of Judah and the exile are not due to some failure of God's, some powerlessness on his part. His victory over Gog manifests his power absolutely. They could only have gone into exile if he permitted it. No enemy could ever have conquered Judah. None could ever have destroyed Jerusalem if God had not wanted it to be so. It was a judgment. But Israel, we finally learn in the last paragraph, will not always be under judgment. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob. And I will have compassion on the people of Israel. And I will be zealous for my holy name. 
They will forget their shame and all the unfaithfulness they showed toward me when they lived in safety in their land with no one to make them afraid. When I've brought them back from the nations and have gathered them from the countries of their enemies, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, so too I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. This is the only answer Ezekiel will ever give to the when question. When will he regather the people into the land? After the war with Gog. When will he pour out his spirit upon them? After the war with Gog. When will he turn his face to them and forgive their sins? After the war with Gog. When is the war with Gog? That he never tells us. So if the prophet never intended in these chapters to answer the why question, or yes, to answer the when question, what is his purpose? Is he being deliberately opaque? The answer you will guess, you will have guessed I'm sure, is connected with the oracle against the mountains that we read in chapter 6. You will, I'm sure, have noticed some of the similarities to chapter 6 as we read along but let me itemize them once more, just so we can remember. In both texts, there is sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. In both texts, God brings his sword against the mountains of Israel. In both, the mountains and the land are ruined. In both, the slain are scattered on the mountains. In both, the bones of the slain are exposed on the surface of the land. In both, the Israelites are described as fugitives of the sword, the only two places in the entire Bible. They're called that incidentally. And finally, the annihilation teaches the survivors to know that I am the Lord. What Ezekiel 38 to 39 is doing is it is taking up the judgments that were inflicted on Judah in chapter 6 and turning them on Gog and his host. It's an act of reversal, one that inverts the position and the power of Israel with that of her foreign oppressors. Israel is no longer the unprotected victim The pagan nations used so often to punish Israel are no longer free from judgment themselves. Here at last is the main point of these chapters. Israel was selected by God to be a holy people. His gift to her was the land, a place where they could live together in peace while they accomplished the goal of bringing blessing to the nations. But Israel's endless rebellion and sin corrupted the goal. The relationship to the nations became one of hostility and strife, and worst of all, Israel did not spread blessing among the nations. The nations spread paganism among the Israelites. 
This terrible inversion is the way, uh, inversion of this, beg your pardon. Uh, Sorry, this terrible inversion of the way God intended things to be had to be set right. God began to set it right by addressing the cause, which was his own people. In chapter 6, he punished them for adopting the practices of the nations. In chapters 38 and 39, he then punishes the nations for corrupting Israel. Only after having addressed the sins of both parties can God's blessings be fully realized. That's why the full restoration, the return of all Israel from diaspora, the pouring out of God's spirit, God turning his face to his people again, that's why that can only happen after the punishment of the nations. These chapters are not about when, They're about how. Restoration only comes after resolving sin. That's a very basic idea in the entire Bible. It's bedrock. All its teachings about forgiveness rest on it. Seems a bit obvious, but it's a bit more nuanced than it seems at first. In Israelite culture, it was never enough to just bring sacrifices to the temple to have one's sins forgiven. The prophets, in fact, frequently criticized the people for treating sacrifice as if it's a reset button, one that wipes out one's guilt, for assuming that one could commit sin and have it easily absolved. In the Torah, Israel is told that once a year, they are to gather together at the temple for a week-long festival called Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it's called in many English Bibles. During this festival, each family is to set up and live in a sukkah, a tent, or a hut. This is to remember the 40 years that the people wandered in the wilderness before entering the land, living in tents. It was the traditional time for Israelites to bring sin offerings to the temple, the time when they would seek forgiveness from God. This is because each person during Sukkot is meant to contemplate their sins, to reflect on all the ways that they have wronged one another during the year. And this is the essential point. One was not to seek God's forgiveness until one had sought the forgiveness of the person one had wronged. Until that was done, Restoration with God was not meant to be attempted. If you attend a synagogue today during Sukkot, you would hear a number of scripture readings. Some are about the practices of the holiday itself. Some, though, are about great moments in the history of Israel of sin and forgiveness. In particular, you would hear the sin of the people building the golden calf at Sinai, And immediately after that, on the very same day, you would hear the oracle of of Gog of Magog, because both are stories about what what is required for reconciliation between humans and God. This, I think, 
is the lesson of Ezekiel 38 and 39 and a point that I want to stress in conclusion. As Protestants, we're taught from childhood that grace comes through faith and faith alone. No one can earn forgiveness. That's impossible. We're too flawed in any case. We're uncomfortable with the idea that we need to do anything to be forgiven. That sounds too much like salvation that we earn. Ezekiel would agree with this, as would the Torah. But what both the Torah and Ezekiel want to teach us is that God wants us to be people who pursue forgiveness anyway, who pursue reconciliation. Not because we can earn it, not because, oh, sorry, but rather because he wants us to want to fix what we break. After all, our sins affect one another. We hurt one another. We fail one another. We lead each other astray. Admittedly, we are impotent to make the consequences of our sins go away. And we certainly can't force anyone else to forgive us if they're not willing to do so. But what Ezekiel shows us is that we have a God who addresses all parties involved in any wrong. And that setting things, and that settling things precedes restoration. We don't have the power to set things right ourselves but we can emulate this desire of God's. We can be people who try, people who strive with the will and the strength that we've been given to fix the things that we break and to pursue reconciliation, both with God and with our fellow human beings. Thank you.